Welcome to Black's Academy and welcome back to our monthly market mix. I'm Michael Sutler, here again with your personal guided tour through the world of finance, investing and trading. If this is your first monthly market mix, you're lucky and you should consider being an investor if you're not already one. Our monthly market mix is a periodic review of the financial markets and by financial markets, I don't just mean stocks and bonds. I mean everything. If it moves, it's news. The mixes are designed to keep Blacks Academy students ahead of the game. Our goal is to educate our students and by extension, listeners like yourself in a way that makes you better decision makers. I hope you're ready for a wonderful mix. We're going to occupy two months worth of information and we're gonna combine February with March. For our topics, we're gonna to start with the business. We're gonna go down to the market review. It's something that I haven't done in at least a few monthly market mixes. And so we're just gonna go briefly through the charts, talk about some of the things that we normally do like the financials, S&P 500, NASDAQ, but also bring in a few markets that we haven't touched in a while. After that, I'm gonna talk about some important dates that was for February and March just to keep continuity. And then we're gonna start getting into some of the real topics that people have been asking about. For example, in the segment called A Few Detrimental Data Points, we're going to talk about a question I still hear so much. Are we in a recession or not? As kind of an intro to that, I think that's the wrong question, but since everybody's asking, we're gonna go with it. Then after we decide whether we're in a recession or not, or even something else, I'm gonna take you guys to the other side, which basically introduces some fun with one of the financial talking heads that I'm sure you've heard of before, unless you live under a rock, and that's Jim Cramer. The financial market finds ways to monetize just about anybody and everything, and the inverse Kramer is something we're talking about on that side. After that, we're going to go into a very special edition. This was an add-in to the monthly market mix, and it involves a tech bank collapse that just ha happened. We're gonna talk about Silicon Valley Bank and all of the things that make people get the shivers and think that it's back to 2008. Are we really having 2008 vibes? Well, we'll decide. And after that, I have another small segment about something. Why worry? I say again, this is definitely not investing advice, but I think for all listeners, whether you're investors, traders, or just listening along, this is advice that you can use in your life. Now, get your notebooks out. We're about to get to the business. So to get things started, as we always do, we have the S&P 500 index. I'm looking at the S&P 500 on sort of a short term time frame, a six hour window, but it's only to show really how we've been since the fourth quarter of 2022. Prices have moved up from the fourth quarter of 2022 when we established a low at about 3,500. We're currently sitting at about 3,861 as of Friday's prices, but you can see that we're pretty much range bound in the S&P 500. And to be honest, it's been a rough start to the year 2023 properly. The index hit a high in early February around 4166, almost 4200. 
but we've kind of been in a nosedive since then. As far as investors are concerned, my outlook leaving 2022 was that 2023 would maybe be positive, but I wanted investors to understand that given what happened last year, it wasn't a panic moment, but it was more a realignment of which stocks were going to be lauded. Like I think we switched from growth mindset to value asset mindsets. And we talked about this in the last trio of monthly market mixes where I think value is back in style. And I clearly think that this is going to be reflected right now, technically speaking, looking at the charts, I apologize for the lines, but I think we stay in this range between maybe 3,800 on the bottom side. If we start to crack below that, maybe we get into some worry zone, but I'm not really worried. The pattern as we moved up through the fourth quarter of 2022 to where we are now is it looks like a flat, a type of correction. And I think we kind of stay range bound until we get some of the scaries knocked out of the financial system. I'll talk more about that as that becomes more relevant in the later parts of the segment. Moving on, you're going to see more of the same for QQQ, which is going to be my surrogate for the NASDAQ. So I use QQQ to kind of look at the lines. I used to use the future, but I like showing the ETF because it gives those who are trader or invested mindset something to look at. Same manner speaking, I think as long as we stay above 280 in uh, QQQ, we're going to be in good shape. I think the moves up from the beginning of the year was just sort of a relief rally because we haven't really made too many substantial higher highs. From a price action standpoint, we did have a break of structure to the downside uh, going from the highs that were breached in the middle of December 2022. Then we hit another low. It wasn't a new low, but we hit another new low. And then we broke higher again at the end of January into February. And so we're sort of retracing back. We're now at about the 50% retracement on a large level at about 287. And again, I think we can come down to 280, maybe even a little bit lower, but I feel fine in this range. Again, the key word is range. Now, one of the interesting things I brought up in our last monthly mix that made me start tracking it a little bit more was the insistence on European stocks and European securities in general to do well. This comes after a year, I guess, for shock. And most of the European indices, just like rest of the world, the Americas and Asia, Africa, most of the securities had a pullback of some sort. And you can see that here as I'm showing the DAX index. It had a great pullback in 2022 just like what we saw in the United States. But from that end of September, that beginning of the fourth quarter 2022 until now, we've had an incredible rise in German stocks, but you can see this also in the CAC 40. You can see it in a lot of the European uh, ETFs and indices that European stocks are up. And even from the beginning of the year, they've had a great start. And I use this to contrast just a learning moment for black students in particular saying that, Hey, if you guys are securities and stock centric, you're looking for somewhere to put your money, understand that you have access to markets that are outside of your own and in lots of portfolios, including more of the professional side of things, you will see exposure to international markets. This German index is up about 12.36% from the beginning of the year, give or take some. And I'm going to overlay the S&P just to give a comparison here. And you can see they're correlated. 
as you would expect of major indices for the developed world. However, you can see that the S&P is lagging just like the NASDAQ was. All, and if I was to put up small caps in the United States, you would see the same thing. But I'm putting this up to remind you, as you're looking for things to invest in, as you're looking for these themes, understand that your world is broad. There's lots of avenues. And this is just to show that Europe may be one of the shining stars here in early part of 2023. Now, technically speaking, I think in this index, we probably have maybe a few more percentage points to the upside before we hit some substantial resistance that takes us back a couple of years. Yeah, we have about 4% to the upside and we may hit. Now, if we break through that, as long as the fundamentals look good, I think this could be a winner. Now, moving on, or I guess I could say back, we're going to change from the equity side of things and go to the bond markets and looking just at the bond markets in general, I like to bring up the iShares core uh, U.S. bond fund, AGG. It's used as a benchmark to see how U.S. bond prices are going. And as you can see, things are still struggling. Bonds had the worst year in almost a half century in 2022. What we're seeing now is going to be a reprieve. I actually think that bond prices have room to go to the upside, which may do something for yields. There's a lot of reason to think that yields may start to slow down, but that is very Fed dependent. We'll talk a little bit more about that as time comes. But for right now, technically speaking, looking at this chart, I think it's relief rally to the upside. Uh, technically speaking, it's just going to be a retracement against some of the levels that we've already seen. We haven't quite hit the 38.2% retracement to the last major move that we've had. And I don't think we've actually hit the 33% yet. So, in terms of short-term targeting, if the bond prices for AGG can get up to here, you're talking about 101 and a quarter, uh, somewhere in that range. Uh, there's room to run to the top side, but not really like a systemic or some type of substantial change in the bond markets, at least on the actual price of the bonds. Now, one of the things I'd like to look at, especially you have to look at it in terms of bonds is, we just looked at the actual bond, but we can look at the yields for bonds now. And I bring up short-term bonds. I'm going to look here now at the U.S. six-month bond yield. And you can see that's at about 5.16%. U.S. bond yields are going to approximate, you know, again, the Fed rates plus whatever premium investors are willing to pay. But one thing of notice here is that I have the six-month bond overlaid with the one-year bond. And the one year is now coming in at 4.99, which is slightly less than the shorter term six month bond. That's a little strange. And what I started noticing as I started looking and started adding longer term duration yields, like I can add the five year in, it comes in at 3.87%. Again, lower than the six month. And then I add in the 10 year and the 20 year and both of these come in lower. Anytime you have longer duration bond yields coming in lower than the shorter term, you have what we call a yield curve inversion. We've talked about this in prior monthly market mixes. And in short, what it presages or presages is potential worry for, at least from an investor, investor sentiment or investor perspective, short-term worry for the economy. It seems like investors are more willing to pay for shorter term duration securities 
in bonds than they are for the longer term. And that has really some implications about how investors feel about the future. In short, they're not that positive, at least those that are buying these bonds. Now, going to another market that is having a bit of a relief rally, and that's Bitcoin. Over the last few hours, we've seen Bitcoin come up about 7 8%. It's not unusual to have that type of move in the crypto markets, but Bitcoin came off a bit, pretty big slide through the middle to the end of February and into the first part of March after having a good rally from the beginning of the year. All in all, on this very short time frame that I have on screen, I think, you know, Bitcoin seems like they want to rally. A lot of people are really for that. I'm not for it or against it. As long as I label Bitcoin as a risk sensitive asset and not necessarily an alternative to me, I think Bitcoin moves up when everything else in the risk range that it represents moves up as well. I, th I still think the top side is still limited to maybe, you know, 25,000 or so. But if I take a longer look out, which I'll do now, you can kind of see that we still have a long ways to go. Now, if we can break this 2,500, there's a lot of room to the upside. I just know that now, fundamentally speaking, what we're seeing in the short term for Bitcoin is a result of what's going on in the financial sector at large. Hint, it deals with that whole tech bank SVB situation that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Now, moving on to what's considered to be another alternative, if you will. I haven't checked out gold futures in a long while and just in a cursory standpoint, as we're getting to the end of the first quarter of 2023, I'd like to see what's going on, especially in the light of our inflation situation, whether or not we're actually going into a recession and everything else that's just factored into the world of finance. Well, for the very large scale picture of a, maybe, you know, I'm looking here now at a daily picture, which spans back to 2019, we're still range bound in gold between to the top side about 2080 and to the bottom side, which we just hit at about 1640 gold looks poised to go higher and we may see some resistance around 1960, but I don't really see anything significant here. I can easily see gold pulling back to 1800 before making a move to 1960 for those that trade in gold futures or maybe some type of derivative, uh, maybe even gold stocks, but they typically don't correlate directly with the future as I have here shown here. That pullback may be an opportunity, but I think some of the headwinds in the economic world should be addressed fundamentally before looking at that position. Now, moving on to what was my favorite chart of last year was crude oil. I think crude oil since the end of last year into the beginning of this year has been range bound. It's been range bound between about $70 a barrel to the top side, about 81, 82 until we break out of this consolidation period. And there has to be a lot of factors that come into this, mostly looking at industrial production around the major industrial centers of the world. I don't think we go much higher. I don't think we go much of anywhere, but I think looking at that macro perspective, which I will in our upcoming monthly market, Mitch, which is going to be a big one. I think we'll get some more coverage on what crude features are actually going to do right now. I'm just hanging in this range. One thing I will say that the derivative of crude oil, which we've talked about, which is the Arbob gasoline, 
you're going to see a slightly different picture. And the way I picked up on this was actually at the pump. As I overlay in orange, uh, the Arbob gasoline, you can see that Arbob, as you would expect, is correlated with crude oil prices. But you can see there's a slight divergence in that Arbob prices have risen in the last few weeks, whereas crude oil is pretty much stagnant, like I say, in this range. There's typically going to be a correction or some type of mean reversion between the two, which means that crude oil has to rise or Arbob has to revert back to the range where crude is, but it's an interesting divergence here that we should actually as traders, I know this is something that we pay attention to because as one asset that is correlated to another starts to move away from the range, it creates an imbalance in the market and we see these as trading opportunities. Staying in energy, but getting away from the crude oil complex just a bit, one of the natural, I guess, natural commodities that is also a big part of the world is natural gas. And as we saw from last year, as you would imagine, as a result of the Russian-Ukraine war and some other elements and the European energy crisis, you can see that the prices accelerated a lot through most of last year. But again, as just as the equity markets start to peel off, we started to see a precipitous dive in natural gas prices. And some of that stuff is cyclical because as natural gas is priced in these monthly contracts and you get estimates of what the weather is going to be like in certain areas, the winter that we had plus some of the other geopolitical factors caused this, this commodity, which it was odd. Natural gas was a loser in, you know, the fourth quarter where, I mean, tremendous loss here. We have almost 74% down since this would be the end of November of 2022. And right now we, I mean, that's taking it from right around seven and a half dollars per million BTUs all the way down to where we are now at 245. There's actually a lot of technical interest here. As you can see, there was 100%. This was a really nice move for our academy students that are studying the measured move. There's actually a measured move pattern in here, if you pay attention. Coming from the highs that were made in August down to the lows in October, back up to November, and then crushing it at a, almost a perfect 100% projection there. If you were sitting here trading natural gas, which again is a very volatile, very risky market. And I don't know a market that was more risky last year than this one. It's definitely what they would call a widow maker. But this year, I think we may have more muted prices unless we again have changes in that macro or that geopolitical space. But for right now, I think we base maybe around 230 down to maybe $2 per million BTU. But this was one of the rare commodities that did not do well through, through the end of the year. But it goes to show you that as asset classes benefit from changes in rapid changes in interest rates, like commodities and some bonds, some bond yields do these changes can quickly revert. And that just shows you how dynamic the financial markets truly, truly are. Now, moving on to another commodity that can't necessarily have its price blamed on interest rates, at least not directly. We have eggs, grade A large eggs per dozen. And you can see the prices are still sky high. The reason is the bird flu, the avian flu that affected all of the U.S. chickens and 
egg laying birds, turkeys as well, still rages on. And there are some efforts looking into vaccines and other things, even though farmers felt like they had the situation underhand. The last time we, we reported on this, it does not seem to be in hand. And as we see, the prices are still sky high as it goes with eggs. Now, as we round out our market review of the charts, I'm bringing up not something necessarily tradable, but it was an index that was really old school called the Baltic dry index, which shows the relative prices of shipping of large goods across shipping lanes across the world. And we can see that the prices peaked in 2021 and we've been down ever since. But one thing of note since the last time we reported on this is that there has been a pretty much a big surge in price in the Baltic dry index. So as prices come down, shipping costs tend to go with it. The reverse is true, too. As we can see, we saw that, you know, we had supply demand shocks in 2020 and 2021. And those things seem to have alleviate themselves some, even though we still have some supply chain issues. What I'm seeing now is that we had a bottoming out of the index right at the beginning of February. And we have reversed hard going back the opposite direction. What this means for the economy, I'm not exactly sure. I need to do some more fundamental digging in actually what makes up the Baltic dry index, because as I looked at it back in the day, there was one major component that was missing from the Baltic dry index that is very apparent now. And that's the shipping between two superpowers, Brazil and China. A lot of people say that the Baltic dry index does not represent the whole of the shipping world, but rather that one segment. And I think this may show us more about how China's economy is coming back online more than shipping and supply uh, chain stuff. Like as I thought that it would when I first looked at it again. So we've rounded out our charts. Hopefully that wasn't very painful. Now we're about to get into some of the fundamentals of are we in a recession or not? But before we get into that, I have to show the important news days because, well, it's on the agenda. And two, this is sort of the information that I said in 2023. I wanted to give our listeners and viewers more breath to more understanding to and bring out some of the terms that were very important last year that I'm really hoping will be important this year. And among these important news days are what I call risk events. Risk events are any of the events that traders and investors really look to to cause market volatility because they're usually caused by reports on the state of the economy. Now, this could be very regional specific like the United States as what I'm showing here, or it could be world other world regions as well. But long and short, these events cause volatility in the markets. And in fact, just last year of the biggest losses in any single day, most of them came from the CPI. And so the CPI, which again measures inflation compared to a basket of goods and services is one of the key economic things that not only investors are going to be looking at, but the fed. So here were the dates and it's typically cyclical. Uh, the CPI comes out around the middle of the month and in February, right around Valentine's day, the CPI came out and it came out lower than the last time, but CPI was hotter than some people expected. This plays into whether or not 
we're in a recession or headed toward a recession or any of those questions about the state of the economy. Related is the producer's price index. This also came in hotter than expected in February, and so did personal consumption expenditure, which is what the Fed looks at to base their inflation measures on. They look at the CPI as well, but PCE is their preferred indicator to guide their monetary policy. Now, coming up in March, we've already passed a few of these. The main one that we just passed was the non-farm payrolls, which was on Friday. Non-farm payrolls blew it out again. We had more jobs, at least reported by that report, in the month of February than was expected. The market rally in favor of the U.S. dollar. And it still seems like the Fed has a right to raise interest rates. We'll know more about that coming up this week because March 14th, just like we had on February 14th, again, it's one month later, you have the CPI report. And people are going to be looking at the CPI to see is there an acceleration, hopefully a deceleration in inflation. But what I'm starting to see, and I'm really thinking as a theme for this year and maybe into 2024, is that of persistent inflation. So keep in mind that looking at the CPI, which is coming up on the 14th, followed by retail sales will tell more about how consumers are spending and how much and how frequently they are, followed by, which is going to be big days with the FOMC, which is right on the heralding the start of spring. FOMC, again, is Fed Day. It's when the Fed decides whether they're going to hike interest rates or not. Chances are at this one, which is already, quote unquote, priced into the market, is that the Fed is going to hike by some. So we're already in the range of four and a half to four point seven five percent as a base interest rate. The Fed is likely going to go higher. The question is, are they going to go higher by a quarter of a point, 25 basis points, half a point or even more? You can kind of get that data from what the CPI and core retail sales comes. Now, at the end of the month, which is a little bit backwards, you're going to get the PCE again. But I think we'll be able to tell or at least intuit what the PCE is going to say based on the CPI core retail sales. And it really won't matter too much because the Fed will have made their decision on the federal funds rate already. Now, to the point that I just made. CPI is still persistent. Now we're down from the highs that we had last summer. We're down a lot. We were at 9.1% at the peak, hanging around the eights for most of the summer. Then the first peak of inflation started to fall off. And I think the rate of inflation, the, the rate of change, which is very important here, it's like acceleration in a car. It has slowed down a lot. The problem is, is that prices are still up and stuck. And given the economic environment that we're in, chances are they're not going to really adjust downward. Keep in mind that the Fed's ideal rate is about 2%. 2% inflation is typically an economy going well. I mean, that's an equilibrium value for them or just about. We're about three times higher than that. And you're going to see that not only in food prices, not only in energy prices, but it's going to be reflected pretty wholesale across the economy. And this is why I think looking at the persistence of inflation is more important of a question than saying, well, are we in a recession? Because we've talked about what a recession means and we've talked about it 
from a textbook perspective, but also from a practical perspective in the last two decades or so recessions really didn't mean much practically for a lot of different people, but we haven't seen this type of inflation in a very long time. And I think it means something completely different. For instance, right now, and granted we've only had two full months and we're working on the third, you can see that the average CPI is 6.4%. Last year it was 8%. So you paid 8% higher on the whole on average across the basket of goods that's measured by the CPI. But in some areas like energy, it was way higher utility prices way higher. So some of the other areas of subcategories, you're going to see a lot more pressure. And as of the February readings, and I expect March probably won't be much better. You're going to still see these elevated prices. And to me, again, this is more important than asking about whether we're in a recession or not. Now getting into the feds look again, you can see that, as you start looking at some of the other things that the PCE looks at, like supply constrained durable goods, which is like your large big line items that take a long time to ship from place to place that are costly, uh, travel home prices. This all factors into it. Rent. You again have a peaking of inflation last year, but we're still much, very much elevated. And if you start to adjust for inflation, you still see that something very curious about consumer behavior in this situation. And it exacerbates the problem is consumers are still spending on goods and services like inflation isn't high. Why that matters is the more people spend that actually reflects a demand and again, as we talk about supply and demand, which to me is kind of a, you know, Fisher price baby kind of construct. But as long as people are able to pay the prices that are the prices that are going to stay. And in some cases they will still go up. So we're still going to see elevated prices as long as consumers are able to purchase in the face of rising prices and inflation. It's a conundrum. It's a feedback system. And I think, again, as long as this persists, this is far more important to your pockets, to your investments and everything in the financial world other than asking about a recession. Now, steering away from the numbers, at least the economic reports, we can look at the business outlook. What we see is a lot of firing Google or Alphabet, as they're known now, and a host of other companies are continuing to shed workers. One of the things that companies can do in times of distress or at least perceived distress, one of the easy things they can do is fire. They can get rid of employers on the line item. And that actually strangely enough is good for their bottom lines. So as investors, you can't necessarily automatically say that, Oh, well, this is a bad thing that these companies are, are, are firing people but you have to look at it with a nuance in that if they fire strategically, now I know granted this is bad for in us as individuals, those of us who go to work, this can be very bad on an individual basis. But part of this is part of the feds plan when they talked about the soft landing and the growth recession. Well, this 
is what a growth recession looks like. The economy itself, the GDP slowed some. It didn't slow a lot, but it slowed some and slowing down. But this is taking some of the workforce away, which right now we're at a cyclical trough in terms of unemployment. Unemployment is as low as it has ever been measured. And again, the non-farm payrolls on Friday showed that there was a net positive and jobs added to the system. So even as all of these companies, Amazon, Dell, DocuSign, Disney, BlackRock, you just start naming them, McDonald's, Boeing, Ford, as they're letting people go, these, there's somebody picking up the slack somewhere else. Now, part of the Fed's type rope act is to keep the labor part of the economy growing strong or at least stable while still trying to get inflation down in check to their 2% mandate. I don't know how they're going to do it with their monetary policy, because one of the things I will not get into this time, but we're going to definitely talk about in our next quarterly monthly market mix is the fact that the inflation we're seeing now can be labeled as fiscal inflation. Keep that word in your hat, in your notes. We're going to come back to it. So, the cutting of his global workforce. And again, global workforce means again, some of these people are not all here. So you kind of have to take these firings with a growth look in that as an investor, it may not be bad as you as an individual, you may be needing to look over your shoulder at work. Now taking it to the personal side of things, this gets a little bit more worrisome. I think the economics still show an economy that is growing although not at the same pace that it was, which is a good thing. You still see business activity up, even though there's lots of layoffs and things of that nature. But when we get to the personal side of things, this is where it gets a little dicey because on one hand we see, and we've already talked about consumers are still consuming. But if we look at wealth, according to fidelity, a third of their 401k millionaires, dropped from the seven figure ranks, the two comma ranks at the end of 2022. And what caused that? Of course, the slide in equities, the average 401k dropped, you know, to 104,000 from about 130,000 in 2021. That's about 20%. And that makes sense because the stock market, if you look at the aggregate of your 60, 40 portfolio, which we talked about last time too, it dropped about 20% on average. And even among four or three B accounts, which are for, you know, teachers and charities, nonprofits, they dropped about 19%. And of course, IRAs, which may be in more speculative type, type things had the biggest drop about 23%. But all in all, everybody on average lost wealth. And that's unfortunate in an era where you're still seeing that people are having to spend more and the cost of these goods and services that they're spending on are still elevated, still very high. What's more like this blew my mind when I saw this and this is why I included it. What's more troubling and really more a sign of the times to me is the fact that 64% of us consumers, which is 166 million people are living paycheck to paycheck. Now on the whole, this is nothing new. Uh, to a lot of listeners out there, you're going to be going, yeah, this, I mean, what is life? But 
this lending tree data to me hit me and it struck a nerve because the biggest jump and this shows a disconnect to me was in the high earning group of people earning more than a hundred thousand dollars annually. 9.3 million more people are living paycheck to paycheck. And most of them, about 86% of that, about 8 million earned more than a hundred K a year. This was weird to me because if you talk to just about anybody for some strange reason, I do say strange 100 K seems to be some sort of magical number, just like the 60, 40 portfolio is supposed to be some type of magical hedge to solve all of your investing needs. Neither one seems to be true because if you look at the earners that make between 50 and hundred K, they still were at the same relative level in terms of whether they live paycheck to paycheck or not. And definitely for those who earn less than 50 K. So 66 and 78% of the people who are under hundred K live paycheck to paycheck, but 64% of the people who make above hundred K, what this tells me that is 100 K is irrelevant in terms of a status symbol or a financial relevant figure. Money has become more expensive. The cost of goods and services has gone up. So that 100 K is not nearly what it used to be. And I knew this before, because if you go to an inflation calculator and type in data, you can see that a hundred thousand dollars in 2021. That's the only data I had at the time that I did the measurement spends at about the same rate as 58,000 did in 2000. So in 20 years, it takes almost twice as much money to live than it did in 2020. And that tells you a lot about the environment that we're in. And that says nothing about it because we've come in and out of a few recessions during that period. But on the whole, this asset based bubble that we just went through, I think is much more problematic for people who earn money through working jobs. Now, again, if you're an owner, if you're an investor, you own lots of assets. The asset bubble was the greatest thing in creation. And so you were really sad when 20 percent of your your asset wealth fell off last year. But think about it in terms of cash flow. If cash flow is king, there are a lot of paupers out here, even at the $100,000 range. One of the things that we also saw last year that's spilling over to this year that's bothersome to me in terms of the economy is that you're seeing a lot of loan delinquency. So people now are not being able to pay their credit card debt. Meanwhile, credit card debt hit a new record. I don't know if that's the record adjusted for inflation, but 930 billion, almost trillion dollars in credit card debt. That's a new absolute value type record. And the average credit card balance for millennials was up 26%. But to me, this makes sense because if you look across the CPI, if you look across all the measures in which we look at how much things cost, that 20% number seems to be pretty consistent. Now, one of the things we're going to have to look at in terms of headwinds for personal debt, and I'm going to get to why this is important in a second, is that the government moratorium on student loans, it could expire this summer. They've kicked the can for years now. And I think, again, in the political sphere, it makes sense to kick the can, keep it on, especially going into an election year. However, 
if that government moratorium comes off of student loans, I would expect a lot of the surpluses that people have had in savings, a lot of the spending that people have been able to do because they're not paying their student loans. They don't have to. We may see a reversal of that on some substantial level in the next few months. And I think that will have an impact on consumer spending, which will have an impact on earnings, company earnings and the forward outlooks for the economy. And I think we have a much different picture going forward should that happen. So keep that in mind, the government moratorium coming up this summer. And also this rising debt is a thing. Just like we talk about the national debt and things of that nature, which really aren't as germane to you as personal debt is because the U S economy is 70% consumer spending. Any sensitivities that affect that good or bad are going to affect you more directly than uh, the U S is spending. Looking at the different generations, you can see Gen X, Gen Z, and the millennials are the most troubled and it sort of makes sense. Now, Gen Z is kind of outpacing themselves because they're not as high as the millennials in terms of the percentage of people who are at least 90 days delinquent on the credit cards. There's a lot of reports talking about Gen Z having learned the lessons from their parents and the prior gen generations, and they're actually being more responsible about their finances. It's just that the environment in which they're, they're being there, I guess they're growing up in is one that requires that to even exist. But right now millennials are, you know, the clear cut winner Gen Z and then Gen X following behind that. But again, rapidly rising debt on a personal level is problematic and total consumer debt. You know, this is one of the things too, they talked about millennials in particular is that they racked up debt to a historic level. I think a lot of this comes from the job marketplace as well as what we're talking, what we've been talking about in terms of consumer demand, but consumer debt is up to 16.38 trillion. That's up considerably, you know, it's up almost a trillion dollars in just a year. Now we've talked about this again, you know, I'm coming back to the whole thing about, you know, the fear of 401k millionaires. One of the things I didn't mention was the fact that the data did not account for people who had multiple accounts, but you know, as I'm looking at the numbers and things of this nature, it's still pretty considerable if you look at the swell in assets and then it takes away. But what typically happens as you start to hit new records, as more people start to have more, when the reversal happens, this is a theme in finance. When the reversal happens after a record, it tends to be severe, at least as severe as what was good going up. What comes down comes down much harder. Now, Interestingly enough, Bloomberg took a, an investor survey and asked investors, what did they think was the minimum? And they asked them around the world, just a small survey, small sample size survey of what they thought the minimum was to retire. And that number came up to be about 3 million. It was three to 5 million was the kind of the median range. And of course, in some places like South America and Africa, that range is going to be much lower than it is in the United States. Uh, Europe in the Middle East. Now, how they come up with 3 million, or you may be saying yourself, you know, 3 million is either a small number or it may be very large to you. But I want to put some perspective in here that hopefully will 
put that three million or at least you'll understand why you may also need at least three million to retire. If you ask how much is three million, one of the things that you if you talk to financial advisors, uh, people who know about spending and retirement, that sort of thing, there's a word called a spin rate. And this is generally how much your retirement or, you know, whatever your pool of money needs to kick off so that you can live comfortably after you stop working for money. As a rule of thumb, that spin rate is about 4%. Some people say 3%. I typically like 3% better because I look at the spin rate also, not just on an individual basis, but if you look at endowments and other large uh, sovereign funds, they the, what they have to kick out is typically going to be less than that. It's going to be on the three, maybe two, 2% range. But the thing is this, at just a 3% spin rate, if you had $3 million, you can live at, it kicks out about $90,000 a year retirement. Now, granted, that's not adjusted for inflation. It goes up a little bit. If your cost of cost of living index goes up by 2%, then it's going to be, you know, 3.2% the next year. And then it keeps compounding afterwards such that in 20 or 30 years, it's going to be a lot more money than 90,000, but adjusted for inflation, it'll be about the same thing. The same thing for 4%. At 4%, you have $3 million. You can pay yourself annually about $120,000 a year. Now, depending on who you are, what you do, and what you plan for, these numbers should hit you a certain way. I like looking at, you know, financial Twitter because, you know, they always look at the, you know, tongue in cheek aspect of everything else. You know, we were just talking about millennials. They say, well, Millennials have an estimated average of $50,000 saved up for retirement, which means that, you know, only 2.95 million to go, you know, for a quote unquote comfortable retirement. Now there's a lot more inputs that have to go into retirement and how much you have to spend. But if you haven't done for yourself, this sort of rule of thumb, or, you know, looking at what you would need for a 4% spend rate or 3% spend rate, Take some time to do so on a napkin, scratch pad, whatever. And, you know, at the highest level, maybe see a financial professional so that you can actually talk this out. Talk about some of the other inputs that were needed. If you're not really into that sort of thing, do understand that I'm saying it to you now that three million is probably not as much money as you think it is. And you're probably a lot closer to getting there if you can take some action today to kind of cover the gap no matter where you're starting from. But it's much better today than to get down the road and actually need that three million, find out that is real instead of just a made up number that seemed too far away in the first place. Now, one of the things, another market that, you know, kind of took a beating, at least in the public, was real estate. But I don't see real estate in a hellish situation. I see it more in a purgatory because Curiously enough, real estate became one, if not the largest asset class across the world just a few years ago. It slid 4.9% and everybody's like, oh, well, that lost $2.3 trillion, which is a lot of money. But if you look at it in context, it's not necessarily much of a slide. Now, coming back to whether that's good or bad for the economy, it sort of depends on whether you're a homeowner or you're actually looking to buy or wherever your situation is. Even renters are affected by this because, you know, there are mortgage to rent ratios in different areas that tell you 
how viable a certain area is based on what's there. Now, the U.S. median home sales came down to 383,000. I can remember there was like in the 160s, but it peaked in May of 22 at 433,000. On the whole, your realtor is right. Real estate home values are still $13 trillion higher than it was in February of 2020. So prices are still up. They're likely to still go up. But again, looking at real estate, you have to kind of look at it in a perspective that even though we've seen a pullback, you need a much more substantial pullback to be worried about things to think about. Oh, well, even though this is the biggest drop since 2008, it doesn't necessarily reflect the same environment that 2008 did. This may be a sad thing if you're looking to get into a house. So one of the things, if you look at the S&P core logic, which has this pricing on different real estate areas, most of the areas that fell the most were West Coast. Surprise. San Francisco Bay Area, 16% slide. Seattle, 15%. San Diego, Phoenix. All of these areas in the West had these big slides because just like with volatile access, what goes up eventually comes down. And the more it goes up, the more it comes down. There are lots of other areas that actually benefited from these areas having slides. So as I look at this slide, I mean, we're talking about a 5% slide in, in a very popular asset, something that's not going anywhere and you've got plenty of demand. I don't yet see 2008 vibes for real estate. So if you're looking at the economy as a whole, don't mention real estate as being one of those areas, at least not right now, that's contributing to the downfall. Now, again, We've had prices slide, but they haven't slid nearly enough. And I think if they do come down, it will probably induce more buyers into the market. Right now, a lot of buyers are still being priced out of markets. It's harder for them to get loans because, as I repeat for the umpteenth time, money has become more expensive and it's still going to be even more expensive as we walk forward because the Fed is still likely going to raise rates. One of the other just data points to me that said that, you know, got me as a wow. Home buyers and we're not talking about hedge funds right now. We're not talking about institutional buyers. We're talking about just average Joe's well, maybe above average Joe's because they seem to have lots of savings are paying cash. And in some markets it's the majority of owners, which is crazy to me. So, it's reflecting the environment that you have to have cash. You have to have enough of that asset, which has become more popular, of course, because it's worth more. It's not as cheap. It's not as freely available. You got to have cash to come in some markets. And so if you are looking to buy a home, it's back to the basics. Just like with the investing, we're talking about value, value investing is back to the basics. So in real estate, net savers are winning out at least until, you know, we do come into some type of systemic crash or whatever brings assets back or at least stabilizes income enough that people could start buying homes at the current rates. So for right now, we're going to split this monthly market mix. This is just the first part, but we've almost rounded out an hour. I didn't think it took that long, but I want to really get into the fun part of things, which happens next. So 
stick around or at least maybe fast forward. If you made it to this point now, congratulations. Hope you've learned something. But we're about to get into the introduction to the Jim Cramer ETFs and also that tech bank collapse in the next segment. Stay with us at Blacks Academy and we hope that you make good decisions like coming back. For more information about our trading and investing courses, visit www.blacks.academy. That's B-L-A-X-E dot academy.